kind of trace the history of things of that nature have suggested finding death. But but first, uh, let me let me read to you some some situations here as a way to jumpstart our discussion. Karen Ann Quinlan. Karen was in a persistent vegetative state, quote unquote, supported by an artificial respirator. Her parents, arguing that Karen would not want to exist in this state, uh, physical state, sued for the right to have the respirator turned off. The parents won the appeal and the respirator was turned off in 1976. Karen, however, continued to breathe and live for another 10 years. Bruce Tucker and Joseph Klett, May 24th, 1968. Bruce Tucker fell at work and sustained severe head injuries. He was taken to the Medical College of Virginia where he was treated for bleeding in the brain. He was put on a ventilator and an operation was performed to relieve pressure on the brain. It was unsuccessful. Tucker was described by the physician in charge as mechanically alive. Prognosis for recovery is nil and death imminent. At the same time, a patient named Joseph Klett was in a ward awaiting for a donor heart. When the EKG attached to Tucker showed a flat line, the doctors concluded that he was brain dead. They operated and transplanted his heart to Klett. Tucker's kidneys were also removed for transplantation. Virginia law defined death as total cessation of all bodily functions. Tucker's brother sued the doctor saying, quote, there's nothing that they can say to make me believe they didn't kill my brother, end quote. Then you have in recent history or in recent years, uh, the story of Terry Schiavo once again here in Florida. Uh, and then you have to answer the questions about those who were revived after drowning and the situations of coding and what have you. How, how do we know when a person is, is truly dead? Well, let's give some, look at some definitions. And these come from a variety of sources. These come from medical uh, um, bioethics uh, publications um, and uh, other medical journals. The first one is by Tristam Englehart Jr. He says, if the cerebrum is dead, the person is dead. This is also referred to as higher brain death. Higher brain death. Robert Veach says that death means a complete change in the status of a living entity characterized by the irreversible loss of those characteristics that are essentially significant to it. A complete change in the status of a living entity. Another one is that the, says that the departure of the soul from the body now, that's a common belief shared by many, but the problem with this view is what, what uh, then is the soul and then where is it located? If, if there's going to be this, this separation or this departure, a good response would be that the soul precedes the body. You cannot have a body without a soul. This is, um, th this is actually surprisingly, uh, no, well, not surprisingly, but it is shared among a lot of evangelicals because we, rightly so, claim to 2 Corinthians 5, 8 to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. And so with their, their departure, but the problem not with the text of the scriptures, certainly not a problem with the Bible, but a problem from a medical standpoint, the doctor will say, well, where is that soul? They can't operate on it. They can't do, and so if you're going to use that as your definition of death, that's going to be hard from a, from a bioethical standpoint to, to deal with. Letter D. Cardiac definition of death. Cardiac definition of death is an individual dies when there is irreversible cessation of circulatory function. Your heart stops beating. 
This is an older and largely non-used definition because the locus of determination is based basically just on a pulse. And, um, that, you know, is that enough? The, the case that I read about Bruce Tucker, the doctors concluded when the EKG attached to Tucker showed a flat line, they concluded that he was brain dead. So they derived brain death from the fact that he didn't have a pulse. Correlation there is kind of, I think, even for laypersons like us in medical terminology, that doesn't seem to kind of add up, right? Uh, how do you formulate brain death from a, a, a lack of pulse? So. Then you have uh, letter E, heart and lung definition. That is the irreversible loss of, uh, loss of flow of vital fluids or the cessation of cardiopulmonary function. When the heart and lung stop functioning, the person is dead. Two other publications uh, base this definition and kind of reword it and, and tweak it a little bit to say this. Black's Law Dictionary, the cessation of life, the ceasing to exist, defined by physicians as a total stoppage of the circulation of blood, the cessation of animal and vital functions consequent thereupon, such as respiration, pulsation, etc. So the heart and the things associated with the heart. Then Thomas versus Anderson in 1950, the California District Court, death occurs precisely when life ceases and does not occur until the heart stops beating and respiration ends. Death is not a continuous event and is an event that takes place at a precise time. So just stopping right here, we are now asking ourselves, well, if that is when death occurs, are we to do anything about it? Should the medical community do anything? Are they obligated to do anything about it? Well, even I can tell you in my time serving in, in EMS and the fire service, we had patients that we found like this. And what did we do? We started resuscitative measures. So you can see that so far we don't really have a, a uh, I think, something solid that we as an evangelical community could say, yeah, we, we could rest with this definition. So let's keep moving on. Is there anything better? Maybe. Total brain death, that's letter F, total brain death. An ad hoc committee at Harvard Medical School, and one of the main physicians there involved was Henry Beecher. Henry Beecher, um, you don't know him, uh, but you know something that he contributed. Have you ever heard of the placebo effect? He's the one that came up with that term and did the studies on the placebo effect. In 1968, this study was done after increasing frequency of the use of biomedical technology to keep physical life going for an indefinite period after, after consciousness has been irretrievably lost. This is one of the watershed landmark studies because now um, you've got technology. And so what are we going to do with all this technology? This is 1968. I know this is a long time ago, but it's still kind of for many of you, and, and uh, it's kind of fresh in your minds. I mean, your memory banks go to 1968. And so now what do we do with the stuff that we have in the hospitals, uh, medically speaking? Well, they had four criterion to determine death. A, unresponsive, uh, unreceptive and unresponsive. That is, no response to externally applied stimuli. You pinch, they don't do anything. You hit... Uh, reflexes, no response. You, you know, shake them. They don't. They don't do anything. There's just absolutely no response. There is no letter B. No movement or reflexes. No movement or reflexes. 
without the use of artificial mechanisms. Now, this movement for letter B, uh, if you notice, I have in parentheses organs. Now, we're talking about more internal. Letter A was kind of external stimuli. B is going to be the internal stimuli. So is there anything responding on the inside to, uh, to artificial mechanisms? Um, letter C, no pupil reflexes. They are fixed and dilated and do not respond, uh, no resp- and do not respond to light. Letter D, a flat electroencephalogram. That's the machine that determines brain activity. There are, there's absolutely zero, no brain activity. Two additional safeguards were given. A, tests must be repeated 24 hours later to rule out the rare false positives. So you keep, you know, if there's a machine on them, you keep the machine going. You do the same test 24 hours later. Tests must also be performed with body temperature in the normal range and without the presence of response-altering drugs. This has been widely accepted as a safe set of rules, and I find this as an acceptable view myself. Uh, We're going to talk in just another minute about uh, the functions of the brain and how the functions of the brain help to give us some answers as to when and where death is occurring. Okay. So, so far... uh, to kind of recap everything, we saw a bunch of definitions that centered around heart and lungs. But we saw that that seemed to be insufficient because too many times there have been resuscitative measures that have gotten the heart and lung uh, functioning uh, back again. And so we can't say, well, that's death because we're going to try to do what we can to bring that person back. Does it work all the time? No, absolutely not. But by the time that other medical um, uh, things and devices could have been used, and that person is, you know, long gone. Um, then, when this study came out in 1968, this really armed physicians, uh, and I use that in a positive way. This really gave physicians a, a good template for how to determine death. And if you'll notice, uh, one of the things that was dependent upon is now they're looking at the brain. What is the brain doing during this time? So we go to letter G and look at higher brain death. This view holds that the higher functions located in the neocortex of the cerebrum, and I have included for you a handy-dandy diagram of the brain. Okay? It's in color. This will help you with understanding some of these definitions. This view holds that the higher functions located in the neocortex of the cerebrum or the upper brain are necessary components of life. A brief explanation of brain anatomy here. There's, there's three things. Number one, the cerebrum. On your diagram, if you look at the colors there, if you look at the front, that's kind of blue. If you go all the way around the top and go all the way around the back to the red portion, that's your cerebrum. That's the part they're talking about. What does the cerebrum do? Well, according to... Um, According to physicians, the cerebrum controls senses, reasoning, judgment, emotions, and voluntary movement. So my ability to speak, my ability to think and reason, my ability to communicate, my ability to feel pain and hurt if you, you know, call me a bad name or something. The ability for me to say arm raise. I just raised my arm. Arm lower. And I just lowered my arm. That's voluntary. Okay. Uh, that's the cerebrum. The cerebellum is the part of the brain below and back of the cerebrum. It regulates your balance, your posture, your movement, muscle coordination. So some of those things that we uh, 
that we don't tend to think about. I don't think about balancing right now. Although I am very well balanced, I'm standing on my own two feet. My cerebellum is controlling my ability to stand up on my own two feet. Then you have number three, the brain stem. This is a section of the brain that regulates involuntary functions such as heartbeat and breathing. It can still function when the other two parts of the brain are no longer functioning. You might ought to asterisk that part right there. This can still function when the other two parts of your brain cease to function. Go back to the safeguards, letter B. Uh, I'm sorry, um, just above number two where it says a flat encephalogram, no cerebral activity whatsoever. That means none of that stuff is working. Cerebrum, cerebellum, brain cell, nothing amongst your, your skull is registering any impulses whatsoever. Okay? It's important to tie those two together. Right? Why do we need a study like this? Why do us as evangelical believers, why do we need to think about these things? Well, I think the answers are somewhat obvious, and I think there are more than just the two that I have here, although I'm just going to name two. One, I think, is just a study of medical ethics. Medical ethics. Um, by the way, um, if we were to, as a matter of fact, we're doing this study over a course of, I don't know, seven, eight weeks. And during the course of this, um, this, this statement was true back in like 2006, okay? But you will be getting more training on bioethics than what physicians do when they go to medical school. Okay? Medical ethics, which can serve tremendous goods, they have created uh, difficult circumstances, but also opportunities to save lives that could not be saved. Unfortunately, technology usually runs ahead of ethics. We get the stuff to do something with a, a body but we don't have the ethics to back up the rules of engagement. You follow me? It, it's, it's like, you know, having the bomb to end all wars. And let's just drop it without even thinking about anything else. You see. Um, yeah, cloning. You know, we had the cloning. Remember Dolly the Sheep back in 96 or so? 98? I can't remember. It was late 90s. You had Dolly the Sheep. And so this is why it's important. Another reason why is the, the desire to alleviate the hurt, alleviate the hurt and, and other burdens such as financial and there's time and, and just all sorts of burdens to consider of uh, families and relatives waiting for the comatose loved ones to, to die. Uh, you could also add to the end of that recover. Okay. So that's why we study these things. So what are some of the actual ethical dilemmas? Number one. I call it, the, or it's called the fact-value dilemma. Is versus ought. It's the question that, that answers in a particular situation. You say, well, well, what would you do, Pastor? I don't know what I would do. And you can't answer what you would do. But here is a good biblical answer. I know what maybe should be done. From the truth that we know from God's Word, we know that there should be some actions that will please that will please Jesus more than other actions. So no, I can't tell you what I would do in that situation. But I tell you, it's it's kind of like the age-old dilemma. You know, uh, the armed uh, men come into the church. They hold a gun to your head. Uh, you know, confess Jesus or we'll shoot you. What would you do? I, I don't know what I would do. I'll be honest with you. 
Okay, and neither and, and, and don't you know don't knock me. I, you don't know what you would do either yourself. I know what I should do. I know that I should, and it would be the right thing to do to say yes. I confess Jesus as my Savior and Lord. You see the difference. So you have the fact value dilemma. I'll, I'll talk more about that in just a minute. A desire for artificial separation of biological life from personhood or social life. This is something when we, when we talk about abortion in a little while uh, or in a few more weeks, this is really what comes to mind. Because now we're assigning biological value based upon personhood, viability, the ability to contribute to a society. Yeah, we got, yeah, we'll be talking about uh, the stuff related to stem cells. Um, and because of and because of things like this, if you see the Mayo and Winkler, a four-stage process of dying, just listen to this. Just listen. The dying pa- Stage one, the dying patient is conscious, in pain, and desires to be in stage four. Stage two, the patient is irreversibly comatose because the cerebral cortex has ceased functioning, but the brainstem is still active so that the cardiovascular and pulmonary functions continue. Stage three, the patient is irreversibly comatose because the entire brain ceases functioning, but cardiovascular and pulmonary functions continue because they are maintained by artificial life support systems. Stage four, all principal life systems of the organism irreversibly cease functioning. The organism is, is, uh, as a whole permanently ceases to function. This is death proper. Did you get what, he's, what was stage one? The dying patient is conscious, in pain, and desires to be in stage four. Right? Did you say right to die? Wanting to die. Dying with dignity. That's why we need to study this type of stuff. This is why we need the scriptures to speak into the value of human life. This shift allows for the question of value to replace fact. Remember that fact value just mentioned a moment ago? Value, should we keep stages one, two, and three alive? To replace fact, they are alive. And makes the criteria of life subjective to the individual decision maker in the scenario. Number five, who should have the right to decide whether or not a patient in category one to three can move to four? I'm telling you, this is like what people are talking about now in the medical community. This this was what was surrounding Dr. Kevorkian and the suicide machine. You remember that? That's why they called it dying with dignity. I've got pictures of some of his patients. um, Before they got hooked up to the machine. They didn't look happy. But I remember reading... And the captions talk about how much relief that they have. They didn't look like they had any relief. Because voluntary death to me is not a relief. To just give up. Um, to, To say, you know, Lord, I know that you have a date of my death already determined, but I'm going to fast forward that. 
It's a lot of a lot of stuff to deal with. Okay. Let's look at some biblical views. Let's look at what the scriptures teach, doctrinally speaking. I don't have a particular one particular text. I've got a, a, a kind of a doctrine built, and we've got a lot of biblical references. We won't have time to go through them all, but I will. But you have them in your notes. Let's look at some facts. Number one is this: humans were not originally designed for death. That wasn't part of the plan. God desired an eternal existence with Himself in the garden. That's Genesis 2, 8 and 9. Genesis 2, 15 through 17. In a sense, then, death is a direct attack on our, our, our human dignity. Death is now an enemy. Since enemies are found in warfare, we can see direct implications regarding medicine as a whole. That's, that's why we talk about the patients and the, and, the, and the diseases. I'm going to fight this, is what they'll say, right? That's kind of logical terminology. Number four, apart from Christ, it is the ultimate alienation from God. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. We just weren't created initially with that. Why is it? Well, well death, let her be. Death is a result of sin. Death now became the punishment because of sin. Why was death punishment because of sin? Easy. Sin cannot exist in the presence of a holy God. Spiritual dimensions to it. Why? Because we are both physical and spiritual beings. Scriptures tell us in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis, let us make man in our image. In the Gospel of John, John wrote, God is spirit. So if we are created in the image of God, there is not just a physical constitution to us, there's also a, a spiritual one. That goes back to why we talk about the separation of the soul from the body as something that evangelicals kind of cling to. And I believe it's okay to put that into our theology. I'm not arguing that at all. But from a physiological point of view, doctors don't really see it. You know, They kind of look at it from, from a different angle. Uh, well, depending on who your physician is, they may be a believer themselves and they understand the type of language we would use. 
Jesus's death is the complete demonstration of this. What did he have to do? He had to die for sin. So physically he died. What was the, what was the last thing he said on the cross? I commend to you my spirit. Okay? All right, so there are physical and spiritual dimensions. We were not created to be separate from our bodies, but death brings that reality to us temporarily. And that can be scary. Y'all probably are still wondering why I played uh, that portion, the audio portion of... of um, uh, um, oh, Lord, the 40s are catching up with me. Boy, uh, uh, the, the pastor that I played, he was preaching his wife's funeral. And you remember the point? He was getting very animated and loud. And, and he said, you know, as, as he was just dealing with the Lord on this matter, you just wait till you see your wife again. There will be a resurrection and we will have an eternal body unstained with sin. It won't look anything like. Listen, that's why I'm so glad at heaven. You get to look at me a whole lot better. Y'all going to look a whole lot better. I'm going to look a whole lot better. Okay. A resurrected body is a wonderful thing. And, and, and we will then be, everything then in eternity will be just like it was and like it was intended in the garden. Okay. Um, death is an enemy. There can be no theology of death without seeing it as an enemy. That's in letter D. Death is an enemy. There could be no theology of death without seeing it that way, as an enemy. Death is accompanied, we see in the scriptures, there's several words. Death is accompanied by despair. The psalmist talked about that. It's accompanied with anguish. Psalmist, Psalm 116, verse 3. And also fear. In Hebrews chapter 2. And those are just three of many. Three of many. Death is, a, is, is accompanied by sorrow. You remember the death of Lazarus and how our Jesus wept. Yes, despair, anguish, fear. Despair, anguish, fear. E, physical death is inevitable for everyone. Physical death is inevitable. It's going to happen Regardless, save the rapture, obviously, but it's going to happen. As long as God tarries, it will happen. Letter F, death is a doorway into the presence of God. Death is a doorway into the presence of God. Luke chapter 16, verse 26, 2 Corinthians 5, 10. For some, it's a doorway into God's eternal judgment. For some, it's a doorway to God's eternal joy. Viewing dying and death as merely a failure of medical diagnosis and therapy is anti-holistic and trivializes the final events in our lives, stripping it of important non-medical meaning for patients, family, and society. Let me read that quote again. Viewing dying and death as merely a failure of medical diagnosis and therapy is anti-holistic and it trivializes the final events in our lives, stripping it of important non-medical meaning for patients, family, and society. That's the reason why my grandmother's physician and her, di her, her kidneys had just shut down. Um, her, her entire constitution uh, organically was just shutting down. It was, and it was irreversible. There wasn't medicine or procedures on the planet that would have fixed it. And so my mom was there. I was there. My father. 
And uh, the, the doctor, uh, being an Orthodox Jew, actually, uh, said, why don't you just take her by the hand and just sing to her. Just sing to her in those final, final moments. The, the doctor knew that beyond medicine, there is something to be said about how to die naturally. And, and, and for, for my grandmother's, my, my mom's mother, there was just nothing that could be done. But it just doesn't mean we pull the plugs, we just walk out and pull the sheet over and, and whatever. No, no, no. We, we still treat that loved one with dignity. And even beyond the death certificate, I still believe that there should be a treating of the, de- uh, of the dead with dignity. You see. Um, okay, sure. Uh, question one, the, the blank for letter E. Physical death is inevitable. Inevitable. Letter G. Death is both natural and unnatural. It's natural and unnatural. It's natural in the sense that it will happen, but unnatural in the sense that we just weren't built for it. Letter H. Jesus defeated death. For the believer, death does not hold sway over us. It didn't for Paul. It did not for the early church. Listen to this quote. A common response in the Roman Empire at the death of Christians in the Colosseum was, quote, Behold how they die, unquote. For their nobility in dying demonstrated the truth of their faith. Another quote. The blood of the martyrs became the seed of the church. So what should be the modern day view of death? Well, how about this? Letter I, and we'll end our study with this. The transforming grace of the gospel. Could death be seen as a friend? Because of the transforming nature of the gospel, the grace of Jesus, could we not see death the way Paul saw death? The way Abraham experienced death? Let me read to you. These are the, these are the only texts I'll, I'll actually read, but just listen to... The scriptures describe death in, in these passages. Genesis 25, verse 8. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Uh, that's, a, that's a pretty good obituary, huh? Philippians 1, verse 21. These are texts that you're, you're familiar with, I know. Galatians chapter 1, verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ. To die? Gain. Gain. Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So maybe we can finally see that death for the believer 
could be an escape from a captivity and bondage brought on by sin. That is why in, in, in many funerals, and, and I believe it's a, a right uh, thing to say that we refer to the death of a believer as a homegoing. As death. 